Hey friends, this episode of The Fellow on Call is not meant to be used for medical advice and is intended for educational purposes only. Patient information has been modified to ensure privacy. The views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Enjoy! Welcome to another episode of The Fellow on Call, The Hey Monk Podcast. We're coming at you from Merlot University Medical Center. I'm Ronak. I'm Vivek. And I'm Dan. And in today's episode, we continue on our metastatic breast cancer episode series. And this time we're moving on to metastatic HER2 positive breast cancer. Yeah, let's do it. Excited to get into this one. We had a good episode last week on ER positive disease and the advancements that have happened in HER2 positive breast cancer are just incredible and amazing. And it's really a good way of looking at the history of cancer and targeted therapies when we think about things like trastuzumab and now these antibody drug conjugates. So really excited to get into this one. Mm. Wow. All right, guys, let's roll that show. All right, y'all, how are we feeling today? Doing really well. I just made some Kali tacos. Dan, you'd be proud of me. So so Dan's a, a big chef and I had a nice little cauliflower taco, Peruvian green sauce, pickled red onions. Use the air fryer, Dan. It was, it's very good. That's Very fantastic. Good. Can't beat an air fryer. Those things are really great. Apparently the best Super way to handy. get pizza. Yeah. Yeah. I've never done the pizza, but the cauliflower, I've done cauliflower and tater tots and I actually did chicken one time and that, that was actually, that turned out really well too. But yeah, air fryer is amazing. It took me a second to realize you were saying cauliflower. It must be that, that little Knoxville accent that's coming back out. Clearly we're in our breast cancer series because that brings the best out of Vivek. It does. It does. I think that our series has been going fantastic so far. And to our listeners, thank you guys for checking out this whole series. And especially if you've reached out and shared with us how this series has helped you in better understanding this very complicated disease. And today we're continuing on our journey. So Vivek, I think you have another case ready for us. Take it away. All right. So we have a 48-year-old female with history of stage two, that's a T2N1, hormone receptor positive HER2 positive, left-sided, invasive mammary carcinoma. She got neoadjuvant TCHP and proceeded with mastectomy and sentinel lymph node biopsy. She had achieved a pathologic CR and continued with Herceptin and Pertuzumab for one year total adjuvantly. She also had plans to complete five years of adjuvant tamoxifen therapy. So now let's fast forward three years later, and she's presenting to us with daily headaches and blurry vision. Given the concern for brain metastasis, she underwent an MRI, which showed a two-centimeter left frontal lobe mass with surrounding edema. CT chest abdomen pelvis showed two liver metastases as well. A biopsy of the liver lesion showed an ERPR positive and HER2 positive 3-plus by IHC breast cancer. She underwent radiation to her brain metastasis and now presents to discuss chemotherapy options. We're planning on starting THP on her. So we want to remind everybody that unlike hormone receptor positive breast cancer, HER2 positive breast cancer tends to have earlier relapses if they do occur, and this levels off over time. But when we're talking to our patients, especially, you know, we had this patient, she got this pathologic complete response, which overall is very good prognosis. But what's the general window of time for relapse in HER2 positive breast cancer after we have definitive local treatment? There was a really well done prospective cohort study from Germany actually looking at this. They looked at recurrence based on breast cancer subtype and patients were identified as either luminal A, luminal B, luminal slash HER2, 
HER2, or triple negative breast cancer. Over 12,000 patients were analyzed between the years 2000 and 2016, and we're going to link the second figure from this paper in our show notes, and so please go ahead and look there for, for some additional detail. But suffice to say, it was very clear from the study that for HER2-positive and triple-negative breast cancer, a majority of the relapses seemed to occur in the first five years, and then sort of level off after that with very few late relapses. The figure that will be linked in the show notes also highlights the slow steady relapse rate that occurs with hormone-positive breast cancers, those luminal subtype of breast cancer, looking at roughly 1% per year over the long term. Our patient is both HR-positive and HER2-positive. So in the setting of that type of disease, this is also shown to have more early relapses than luminal A or B alone, but also that risk of, of late relapse because of the hormone receptor-positive component. It's important to note that therapies changed substantially over the course of the 16 years that this cohort study looked at, and of course, after that, up till today. But it's still very illustrative of the general pattern of recurrence and risk for these patients. These studies really give us an insight into the biological diversity of breast cancer, right? We see these different trajectories and paths. It's almost like we have different subtypes that we call it breast cancer, but really there are truly different biologies of these cancers. It's also important to know that there's a higher risk of CNS disease with HER2-positive breast cancer, and we really encourage our listeners to look at some of these prognostic studies to get a better sense on how to counsel your patients after adjuvant therapy because they will ask these questions. But let's get back to the case. So our patient is doing well after radiation. She really has minimal symptoms other than minor fatigue. She actually went back to work her full-time job, and during the visit, she asks about her prognosis and the first line of treatment. How should we counsel her? And after that, we can get into more details on on this THP regimen. This question comes up all the time. And so I think before we discuss first-line treatment, I want to point out that we should not simply be using the median overall survival, for instance, from clinical trials to give our patients a realistic estimate of prognosis. As we know, there are very stringent criteria used when they recruit patients to these studies. And so there are a lot more factors that go into the equation when we see our patients in real time in our clinics. So in a future episode, we will be going into this prognostication discussion some more, but know that we have to take all this information with a grain of salt. If you look at several observational cohort studies looking at predictors of long-term survival in breast cancer, we know that we're looking at a median of three to four years with about a third of patients living over five years. In general, we know that brain metastases are poor prognostic risk factors, and only 10 to 15% of these patients are living at five years. And we will be including a few more representative studies showcasing some of these aspects in our show notes. I mean, this is definitely one of the hardest conversations that we have in oncology. Prognosticating is is really difficult, and general ranges of time can be somewhat helpful for patients up front, but we always need to be clear that this isn't an exact science. We're never going to be able to say exactly how long somebody has, and things can change throughout the course of treatment. Oftentimes, we'll have greater information when we see how someone's responding to our lines of therapy and can sort of update our prognostication as a patient progresses through that. We discussed in our early stage HER2 episode that in the late 90s, there was a roughly 50% response rate with trastuzumab as monotherapy, and it was then incorporated into our adjuvant and neoadjuvant regimens. After that, pertuzumab was added to trastuzumab. 
after progression on trastuzumab alone. And that showed an additional 25% response rate. But nowadays, it seems like we're using these in combination. You just mentioned that we're going to be doing THP for this patient. So what led to the dual HER2 blockade paradigm with chemotherapy as the first line in metastatic disease? Before we get into the trial, I did want to talk about the mechanism of action, again, of trastuzumab and, and pertuzumab because they are slightly different. So remember that both of these medications, like the trastuzumab and the pertuzumab, have an antibody-dependent cellular cytotoxicity, but the difference is their binding site. So the trastuzumab will prevent ligand-independent dimerization of this HER2 receptor that causes signaling downstream. The pertuzumab binds on a different site that prevents interaction with other HER family receptors, so it's more of the ligand-dependent manner. So they have two different mechanisms of actions that truly complement each other. So there was a phase three trial called the Cleopatra trial. It wasn't named after the Egyptian queen, but it was clinical evaluation of pertuzumab and trastuzumab, but Cleopatra is just a cool name. So I'm, I'm, I'm proud of whoever thought of that. It's pretty awesome. They looked at THP, and so remember that's taxotere or docetaxel, trastuzumab or Herceptin, that's why it's H. So we're going to be using Herceptin and trastuzumab interchangeably through this episode, and pertuzumab. And that was compared against just taxotere and Herceptin plus placebo. There were 400 patients with HER2-positive disease that were enrolled in each arm, so a total of 800 patients. The median overall survival was 57 months for THP versus 40 months, so 1.5 years better. So by adding pertuzumab, we're increasing our overall survival by a year and a half, so that's pretty big. And the median progression-free survival was, again, improved by a little over a year and a half at around 19 months. So that's pretty good results that we're seeing here in the metastatic setting. And the other big thing was there is this concern for cardiotoxicity with these HER2-directed therapies, and there was no increase in CHF or heart disease with this dual HER2 blockade. So this is still the standard of care as first line in the metastatic setting for HER2-positive breast cancer. Vivek, that's, that's great to know. I do want to ask you one question about that, though, because when we talked about local treatment and using chemotherapy in HER2-positive patients in our prior episode— we included carboplatin for these patients in the neoadjuvant setting. So why are we not doing carboplatin anymore in the metastatic setting? Yeah, it's a great question. And remember, for our listeners in triple negative breast cancer, we're leveraging that homologous recombination repair deficits that the platinum agents work well in. And we also knew that platinum agents work very well in HER2-positive disease as well. The higher KI-67, generally a little bit higher-grade tumors that respond well to chemotherapy. And so getting that pathologic CR with the carbo is why we added it. But when you looked at it in the metastatic setting, there was actually the BCIRG cooperative group published a phase three trial in 2011, and they compared TCH versus TH, so docetaxel, carboplatin, trastuzumab, versus just docetaxel and trastuzumab. And there was no difference in time to progression, which was a little less than a year, or response rate, which was around 70%. So this is why we don't add the carboplatin. It wasn't any better than TH and why Cleopatra is still the standard of care. Got it. So let's say our patient gets the standard of care THP, does very well for about 15 months, but then unfortunately has progression of disease in her liver and a new lesion in her brain that is felt to represent metastasis. How do we approach second line treatment in the metastatic setting? So the quick answer of all of this is that we go to the antibody drug conjugate trastuzumab deruxtecan or NHER2. But before we talk about this drug, let's get some context because this can be a little bit confusing. 
So in 2009, we found that there was a slight benefit of continuing trastuzumab after progression in the second line setting with capecitabine. The survival was still poor though, and CNS metastatic disease was still an issue because of the poor CNS penetration with trastuzumab and even with pertuzumab. So we developed novel HER2 oral TKI therapies that could penetrate the CNS and could overcome that resistance to trastuzumab. So as a reminder, as we discussed in prior episodes, all TKIs will end in that INIB, I-N-I-B. So we had lapatinib, neratinib, tucatinib, and several studies have looked at these in combination with capecitabine. So maybe before we get into those antibody drug conjugates, could one of you summarize the key findings for the first oral TKI, uh, which was lapatinib, just because this is the control arm in a lot of those trials? Yeah, so lapatinib was really the first kid on the block and ultimately loses. So I think that's the thing that we all need to know. The mechanism of action is that it's a reversible TKI. We're giving this to you because it's still good to know that these targets work differently. These drugs work differently. It was initially approved in the second line after trastuzumab in a trial that compared lapatinib plus capecitabine versus capecitabine monotherapy. You'll be hearing capecitabine works well in HER2-positive breast cancer, so it's going to be a backbone of many of these trials that you'll see. It improved time to progression by four months, but the median time to progression was still just a little over eight months in the lapatinib arm, so it's not really a blockbuster improvement. There was another trial that showed that it didn't improve time to CNS mets because that was the other question here, right? If we took women with metastatic HER2-positive disease and we randomized them to get lapatinib plus capecitabine versus trastuzumab plus capecitabine after progression on first-line therapy with trastuzumab, would we prevent CNS mets? Would we get better CNS control? And it did not meet its primary endpoint of time to CNS mets. So really... Lapatinib, it has activity, but it doesn't have the best activity. Some CNS control, but not really that great of CNS control. It didn't beat trastuzumab plus capecitabine. So had a little bit of activity, but not overall that great. That makes sense. So with that context, let's move into this fascinating realm of antibody drug conjugates. We have TDM1, or trastuzumab emtansine, also known as Kitsila which we had discussed in the neoadjuvant setting for those who didn't achieve a PATH-CR based on that Catherine trial. We also have for uh, trastuzumab druxtecan in HER2. So how do we get to our preferred second-line option, which I think you said was in HER2? Yeah, so there was a trial that looked at TDM1 or that trastuzumab in tansine in the third-line setting after lapatinib that had a response rate of about 30% and a medium progression-free survival of six months and demonstrated promising activity. So just to kind of help everybody keep it straight, all the TDM1 trials are named after female names, and this one was named Teresa. There was another phase three randomized control trial looking at TDM1 in the second line setting called the AMELIA study. And in this study, we were looking at TDM1 versus the standard of care at that time, which as we just mentioned, was lapatinib and capecitabine. 
And what they found was that by using TDM1 now in that second line setting, we were improving the progression-free survival by five months, so nine and a half versus four and a half months. And the overall survival was improved by five months as well. So that is how, as we've seen, things work well in later line settings and we try to push that bar and that's how we move TDM1 now into the second line setting. One of the interesting things about the findings of those trials is that I mentioned before when we compared lapatinib plus capecitabine versus capecitabine, the PFS was around eight months. And now with TDM1, our PFS is still just a little over nine months. So we're making small incremental improvements, but we haven't hit that blockbuster move, which we're going to talk about soon. So we're still looking at this marginal PFS benefit, medians less than one year in the second line, but we're moving in the right direction. So have we tried TDM1 first line then? You know, we were trying to inch this up. Any, any thoughts about moving that to the first line? So I believe this was the Marianne trial that compared TDM1 plus pertuzumab versus TDM1 alone versus trastuzumab plus taxane. So unconjugated trastuzumab plus a taxane. We'll also point out that there was no pertuzumab in this control, in this last control, which really isn't appropriate based on the Cleopatra trial. We discussed where THP was found to be the standard first line in that trial. But um, even with a little bit of help in terms of how the study was constructed, where we should see a bigger difference, there really wasn't any difference in progression-free survival or overall survival, including that TDM1 up front. And we'll have a link to that study in our show notes as well. So let's get into the trastuzumab deruxtecan because that's probably what everyone's wondering right now. Okay, so we, we know that we're having a PFS around, let's say, 9, 10-ish months with TDM1. We tried pushing it up to see if it was better than something like a TH, and it didn't even beat that. So now we have this trastuzumab deruxtecan, and it's very different than TDM1, and, and I want to talk about that. We discussed this a long time ago in our Intro to Pharmacology episodes, but it's really about the drug-to-antibody ratio. For trastuzumab deruxtecan, this is an 8 to 1 ratio, so there's 8 drug molecules per antibody, and that's compared to about 3.5 to 1 in TDM1, so you have more drug per antibody. The other thing is that for trastuzumab deruxtecan, it has tumor-selective cleavable linkers. And what this means is when that trastuzumab deruxtecan antibody drug conjugate goes to the tumor bed, it'll start releasing its payload. It's like dropping off the little bombs in the tumor bed, and that causes bystander effect, killing tumor cells that may not be HER2 positive, or they may have de developed some sort of resistance to endocytosis of that drug conjugated to the antibody. And TDM1 requires this internalization through receptor-mediated endocytosis because it has a more stable linker. It's not having these cleavable linkers at the tumor bed. So those are some reasons why we think that, hey, there's more drug per antibody, more of the payloads being dropped off. So the thought was, hey, this is probably going to work. So it sounded great on paper. But Rona, can you go through some of the results clinically that we saw with trastuzumab deruxtecan? Yeah, and the, the really important paper here was the phase two trial called the Destiny Breast 01 trial. And in this study, they enrolled TDM1 refractory patients or TDM1 intolerant patients. And so essentially, and we will put all of this in our show notes as, as we have been doing, but the overall response rate of trastuzumab deruxtecan was 79% with disease control rate at an astounding 97%. 
At the 2020 data cutoff, the median duration of response was 20.8 months, and there was a progression-free survival of 19.4 months, which is truly remarkable. And of course, with these drugs, this more potent agent, we do need to worry about the side effects. And the biggest adverse event that was reported was pneumonitis in about 15% of these patients. But the majority, thankfully, had it at grade two. There were nine deaths, however, reported due to that pneumonitis. So that led then to the practice-changing Destiny Bresto 3 trial. And this was a randomized trial comparing trastuzumab deruxtecan and trastuzumab emtansine, so that TDM1, in the second-line setting. The median progression-free survival of trastuzumab deruxtecan was 28.8 months compared to 6.8 months with TDM1. And the overall survival data, though, are still maturing at this time. The drug-related interstitial lung disease, or pneumonitis, occurred in about 15% of the trastuzumab deruxtecan patients, compared to 3% in the TDM1 group, without any deaths reported due to that toxicity. We did happen to see more LFT abnormalities in the TDM1 group compared to that trastuzumab deruxtecan group, but still common in both arms. And then the other thing that we did notice was also there was a little bit more alopecia in the trastuzumab deruxtecan arm due to the, to the linker. And we will also put a copy of this in our show notes. So overall, based on the Destiny Bresto 3 trial I just mentioned, really we are seeing super impressive results with this new kit on the block, the trastuzumab deruxtecan. Wow, that is really impressive data. And now fully understand why that's kind of our second line standard of care option. So our patient... She gets started on in her two trastuzumab deruxtecan because of this data, and, and she has an excellent response to therapy over two and a half years without any sign of progression. But now she is coming in with some signs of progressive disease on her last surveillance imaging. What options do we have for her now? What is available in the third line setting? So this is where things get a little bit complicated. I'm going to try to make this extremely simple. So at this point, we knew that first line, we have THP. Second line, we initially had lapatinib plus capecitabine, but that was beaten by TDM1 barely. I mean, nine months PFS, something like that. Not great. And then we had this trastuzumab deruxtecan, which blew it out of the water. I mean, and truly incredible, impressive. It's crazy. I mean, this is what we strive for in cancer. It was, it was truly amazing. And now we're in our third line setting. So as TDM1 and trastuzumab deruxtecan were getting moved up in the second line setting for this disease. We had parallel trials running for our other oral TKI therapies, which were neratinib and tucatinib. So I'm going to talk about that. So in the third line, in theory, you could use TDM1 after progression on trastuzumab deruxtecan with the idea that maybe we'll still get some responses. But again, we don't have any clinical trial data there because we just did the phase three comparing the two of them head to head in the second line setting. A more preferred option for the third line setting is actually to do a regimen that involves that oral TKI called tucatinib. So you may be wondering, well, what about the other TKI that you'd mentioned, neratinib? What happened to that? So I'm going to briefly tell you the story about neratinib. Neratinib's an irreversible pan-HER2 inhibitor. So think side effects, right? Remember that the HER1 gene is the EGFR. These HER family of genes are just these tyrosine kinase family of receptors. 
So lots of off-target side effects. When we're thinking about EGFR, we think about things like diarrhea. So neratinib had lots of diarrhea, but it did have good CNS control. So we knew in early phase studies it had good CNS control, and then it was actually compared to lapatinib. So remember we had lapatinib plus capecitabine? We said, well, what about neratinib plus capecitabine versus lapatinib plus capecitabine? Let's see if this is better. And that was a trial done called the NALA trial. The big thing you need to know there is there's a little bit improvement in the CNS control rates, about 5%-ish improvement in that. But tucatinib likely has better CNS response rates, which is why it's preferred. So it hasn't been compared to neratinib. Neratinib beat lapatinib, but has lots of diarrhea. So now let's get to tucatinib. So Tucatinib is a more selective HER2 inhibitor than the other drugs. So you get less off-target side effects, and it has synergy with trastuzumab. So in preclinical data, it basically said, hey, if you if you chase this with trastuzumab, we get excellent response rates. So in early phase trials, tucatinib had an overall response rate as a single agent of 61% and a CNS overall response rate of over 40%, which is very impressive. So now that takes us to a phase three trial called HER2-CLIMB, and that looked at tucatinib plus trastuzumab plus capecitabine versus trastuzumab plus capecitabine. And this was in the third line or greater setting for these HER2-positive patients. All of these patients had progression after pertuzumab, trastuzumab, and TDM1, which at the time was appropriate. We didn't have trastuzumab druxtecan as the preferred second-line therapy, so actually an appropriate control arm. The median PFS was improved by two months, which was, again, we're in that nine months range, but that's still pretty good, right? In the third line setting, we're getting nine months of progression-free survival, a little shy of a year with this tucatinib plus trastuzumab plus capecitabine when it used to be just about a half year. So we're getting closer to a year compared to a half year. And that is really how it got approved. And the other thing is in that trial, there was a exploratory analysis that was looking at how do these patients do in their CNS? Do we get good CNS control of disease? And we found that we do. For patients with active CNS METs, about 30% of them had stable CNS disease over a year later on tucatinib therapy. So somebody has CNS METs, we always think about these oral tyrosine kinase inhibitors. So in that third line setting, thinking about that tucatinib plus trastuzumab plus capecitabine is really the way to go. All right. So she ended up getting treated with that, that protocol you just referenced from the HER2-CLIMB study and tolerated tucatinib pretty well overall. She did have a little bit of issue with hand-foot rash with the capecitabine that improved with this transition to a seven-day on, seven-day off dosing strategy. But unfortunately, after nine months of good response, she does have progression once again. So at this point, are we down to single-agent chemotherapy or are there other options out there? Similar to last time, when we start getting lower and lower on our treatment algorithms, it tends to become a little bit more difficult with regards to, you know, a streamlined process of, of picking, you know, the next agent for the for the patient. So in these advanced settings, we would always, always, always recommend the consideration of clinical trials if they are feasible because this is a great opportunity for patients to get uh, benefit and also for us to learn more about different treatment options for these patients. But if they are not eligible for clinical trials, then it kind of becomes a choose-your-own-adventure. You could consider neratinib at this point based on the NALA trial, where it did beat lapatinib, but probably little bang for your buck after they've already progressed through something like tucatinib. 
trastuzumab plus chemotherapy, which can sometimes be something like nivelabine or gemcitabine may be an option. And lastly, let's talk about another new drug on the block called margituximab. And this has a similar mechanism to trastuzumab, but it has been engineered to have improved binding and better antibody-dependent cytotoxicity. And so the big trial in, in this space was the SOFIA, which was a phase three trial comparing margituximab plus chemotherapy versus trastuzumab plus chemotherapy in the third line setting and greater. And so essentially in this trial, there was improved progression-free survival from five months to six months, so about a one-month benefit. There was an improved response rate of 25 versus 14%. And an exploratory analysis suggests that there may be some benefit based on the FC gamma receptor genotypes, but this is still very early to say anything that's truly confirmatory. Those are some options that are available in the fourth line setting. So in the fourth line, you know, something like trastuzumab or chemo is so very reasonable, but we could consider margituximab or chemo or even neratinib or neratinib with capecitabine. Yeah, and the way that I like to think about this is margituximab has very marginal benefit. I mean, a one-month PFS, or is that really what we should be looking for? We had this trastuzumab deruxtecan that went we went from nine months to 25 and a half months, which, again, we're not always going to get that. That's a breakthrough cancer drug. But one-month benefit is really tough to hang our hats on there. And I, I really think that trastuzumab plus chemo is a very reasonable option. Once you progress on something like tucatinib, I, I personally don't know how much neratinib is going to get you. And, and you have that side effect of diarrhea. So you always have to think about, you know, giving those patients modium and counseling them about that, which is tough. But I just wanted to recap a, a broad overview on how we treat metastatic HER2 positive disease. I know this was a lot of stuff, but it's really not that bad. First line is THP based on that Cleopatra trial. So we knew that TH was a standard of care for a while, and then docetaxel, trastuzumab, and pertuzumab beat it. And since then, nothing's beat it. We've tried TDM1 in the first-line metastatic setting, and it did not beat standard old TH. So THP is our first-line option. In the second-line setting, we talked about the blockbuster improvement with trastuzumab, deruxtecan, and that Destiny Breast 03 trial where this antibody drug conjugate beat TDM1. So it was far superior with a median PFS of over two years when we were looking at less than a year of median PFS for over a decade. So very, very groundbreaking as the second line. In the third line setting, we talked about HER2-CLIMB, which is tucatinib plus trastuzumab plus chemo. Remember, tucatinib is the, the third of these oral HER2 tyrosine kinase inhibitor that's the most selective, and it has the best CNS penetration, and that's why that's the one you need to remember. And then in the fourth line setting, we pretty much have a choose-your-own-adventure, trastuzumab plus chemo, we do have this antibody called margituximab, which is essentially the same as trastuzumab, in my opinion, with only a one-month PFS benefit. And that pretty much is a wrap for, for this HER2 metastatic disease. Do you guys have anything else to add about the discussion today? I'm just going to say that I used to be a little bit more intimidated by the management of, of this disease. And I think as difficult it is to kind of think about all of these studies in chronological order. It does give you a little bit more appreciation for why we do and what we do and, you know, the sequence of why we're doing the things that we're doing for our patients. So I personally think that we had a great discussion today and really laid out all these details. 
Yeah, I agree. It really has taken an intimidating clinical scenario in, in dealing with a metastatic HER2 positive breast cancer and, and broken it down in a way that I, I feel much more comfortable with. So appreciate y'all going through all that information with us. All right, guys. Well, then I think that wraps up another fantastic episode of The Fellow on Call. Until next time, we'll see you all later. See you later. Peace.